Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Kings. Thank you for inspiring it to be written. Thanks for this time tonight to read it together, think it through together. I pray that as we do that, that for each of us you would open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak your word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 1 Kings 13. It's a weird one, right? Um, I didn't realise this, but, but Anna might be right. I, I think maybe I do get a lot of the difficult passages, and I've just realised it means the rest of the team doesn't like me. <laughs> uh, as I try to, to process that, though, um, we can try to get our bearings on this uh, 1 Kings 13. So uh, it comes um, just after the Kingdom of Israel divided into North Israel and Southern Judah. Mitch took us through that last week. And uh, in our chapter, we've got three main characters. We've got Jeroboam, king of the north, man of God from the south, and the old prophet from the north. Now, that much is clear. Gold robes were in fashion. That's also clear. But then the story seems to raise more questions than it answers, doesn't it? I mean, the man of God's told not to eat with Jeroboam or anyone else in Bethel. Why not? The old prophet lies to the man of God to get him to come and eat with him. But why? Uh, the old prophet then gets a true word that the man of God will be killed. Uh, why does this false prophet get a true word from God? And why is the man of God the one who's killed when it's the old prophet who lied to him. A lion kills the man of God but, but doesn't eat him, oh no. It just stands there peacefully next to the body and also next to the donkey the guy was riding. What the? The old prophet hears about this and he mourns for the man of God. Oh, my brother, what are you crying for, mate? You're the one who did this to him. 1 Kings 13, it's a weird one, isn't it? Some parts of the Bible, I think, are worth looking into a bit more just in the hope that you might find it does actually make some kind of sense after all. The best clue this chapter gives us is actually a phrase that it repeats all the way through the chapter. Verse 1, the man of God comes by the word of the Lord. Verse 2 speaks against Jeroboam's altar by the word of the Lord. Verse 5 rips it apart by the word of the Lord. Verse 9 refuses Jeroboam's lunch invitation because he's commanded by the word of the Lord. Verse 17 refuses the old prophet's invitation also by the word of the Lord. Verse 18, the old prophet lies to him about the word of the Lord. But then while they're eating, verse 20, the old prophet gets the true word of the Lord, that the man of God will die. Verse 26, the old prophet hears about the lion and says this fulfills that word of the Lord. And since he's seen that word of the Lord fulfilled, he now believes the word of the Lord, which the man of God spoke at the very start. 
The word of the Lord is actually mentioned nine times in this chapter. Previous 12, previous 12 chapters in 1 Kings mentioned three times. So, 1 Kings 13 is all about the word of the Lord. How do you know what's really the word of the Lord? How should you respond once you do know? What happens if you don't respond? 1 Kings 13, it is a weird story, no getting around it, but it's getting us to wrestle with these fundamental questions about the word of the Lord. And these questions are just as relevant today. In fact, they're especially relevant today. You may have heard about Andrew Thorburn, once NAB CEO, recently became CEO of Essendon Footy Club. I'm actually from Melbourne originally. The Bombers are my team. But within 24 hours of the appointment, there's this huge public backlash. See, Thorburn's also chairman of City on a Hill, a church in Melbourne, and journalists discover that City on a Hill actually holds to what the Bible says about homosexual relationships. That allegedly makes Thorburn unsafe as the leader of a footy club that's meant to be inclusive. So Essendon gives Thorburn a choice, resign from your church or resign from us. And he resigns from Essendon. Now, it's been a big, huge public debate over this. Was it right? Was it wrong? People have raised lots of different kinds of issues. But one common theme that struck me was people saying, isn't it time Christians gave up the Bible already? Next morning, after all this went down, Sunrise host David Koch put that to Guy Mason, sitting on a hill, senior pastor. See, Guy states the Bible's vision of sex being for only man-woman marriage, to which Koshi says, it's a 2,000-year-old document, come on. It's a different time, a different era. So many other churches are loving and read it completely differently to you. It does raise the question, doesn't it, how important is it really to take the Bible seriously? Should we believe what it clearly says, no matter how costly? Or should we find a, a new word of the Lord that fits our culture better? 1 Kings 13, it's, it's an ancient text, actually older than 2,000 years old actually helps us wrestle with these current questions. In the three characters, we see three responses to the word of the Lord, and for each one, we're going to see what causes that response and also what results from that response. Starting with Jeroboam, as Mitch showed us last week, chapter 12 leads straight into chapter 13, by showing us what Jeroboam made. 
Jeroboam made golden calves, made shrines, made a festival, made offerings. And against this made-up religion comes the true word of the Lord through the man of God from the south. A Davidic king from the south will burn the bones of these false prophets that Jeroboam made on this false altar that Jeroboam made. Well, according to the man of God, that is. But then who's to say this is the true word of the Lord? Why couldn't Jeroboam's religion be the true one? Why should Jeroboam believe this word of the Lord? Well, God gives him a sign the altar is going to be ripped apart now in front of his very eyes. And see, this sign in advance of the full judgment, it actually gives him a chance to believe the word of the Lord and repent before it's too late. Even so, it turns out it is too late to repent in Jeroboam's own heart. See, Jeroboam won't turn back to the word of the Lord no matter what. He, first of all, just cries for the man of God to be arrested. But as he points his hand at the man of God, it actually withers. He can't even pull it back. He's paralyzed, powerless. Then the altar is ripped apart the exact sign the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Jeroboam pleads to the man of God to plead to God for his hand, basically admits uh, the man of God uh, represents God and, and, and that's his only hope. So the man of God does that and Jeroboam is healed. It proves again that the word of the Lord is true and powerful. It proves again that Jeroboam really can be forgiven if only he repents. But somehow, he still doesn't. Instead, he tries a different tack. He, he invites the man of God to his house. Why does he do that? Maybe he hopes over a nice meal accompanied by maybe a generous gift, he can persuade the man of God to be less extreme, more progressive, more accepting of religious innovation. Seems reasonable. But God has commanded the man of God not to eat or even drink anywhere in Bethel, to just get out as soon as possible. Take no chance of getting sucked into this false religion. And unlike Jeroboam, the man of God takes the word of the Lord seriously. As we follow through what happens to the man of God and the old prophet, we're going to see even further proof that the Lord, word of the Lord is true and powerful and yet, even after all of that, Jeroboam simply won't repent. 
Why do you think that is? Uh, why do you reckon he, he can't repent no matter what? Even after the sign of the altar coming true before his very eyes, even after his own hand withering and then being healed, is he just crazy? Maybe he's not crazy. Maybe he's just so invested in everything he made. He can't give it up. No matter how much he sees the truth and power of the word of the Lord, he's so committed to his own way, he can't turn back to the word of the Lord. Jesus tells the story of a rich man who overlooked the needs of a poor man. They both die, and as the rich man's burning in hell, he sees the poor man in heaven, he asks that the poor man be sent back to warn his brothers before they too die and, and, and go to be in hell like him. But he's told they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. Uh, they have the word of the Lord in the Bible. But the rich man says, no, but... If someone from the dead goes to them, they'll listen. Which makes sense, doesn't it? But he's told, actually, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Which is where Jeroboam got to. It didn't matter all the proof that he had, couldn't be persuaded. And that's where you don't want to get to. I'm not saying that tonight to rush you into a, a decision for Jesus if you haven't made one yet. I actually know what that can be like. Um, as a teenager, I wasn't a Christian, but I did go to a church youth group because I went to a boys' school and the youth group had girls, like real-life girls. One night, this youth group goes to this evangelistic crusade. Big tent, loud music, American preacher gives an hour-long sermon full of passion, finishes it with a call to come down the front and give your life to Jesus right now. At first, no one does. But he makes the call again and stands there like, you guys know this isn't over till you come down the front, right? So one by one, people get up and go down the front until I'm like, hang on, I'm about to be the only one in our group who hasn't gone down the front. So I go down and, and someone gets me to pray a prayer. It doesn't mean anything. It's just something that I felt pressured into. It wasn't until years later I really came to know Jesus. Now I hope it's obvious that at Village Church we don't do that. If you're not Christian, you need time to find out what the Bible says. Uh, you need time to work out if it's trustworthy. 
do take that time. But I guess what I'm saying is don't needlessly put off deciding about Jesus. See, the longer you put off Jesus, you might not realise this, but the, the more you are actually investing in your life without him. Actually making it harder and harder to give up that life without Jesus for life with Jesus. You don't want to reach the point where even when you're shown how Jesus really did rise from the dead, you're actually too invested in your own way of life to even care. Don't be a Jeroboam. The second response to the word of the Lord is the man of God. We've already seen his faithfulness to the word of the Lord despite threats, despite enticements. But he ends up departing from the word of the Lord, not through fear, not through greed, actually just through gullibility. God's told him not to eat or drink in Bethel. God's even told him, don't go back home the same way you came, presumably so no one can intercept him on his way. But there's an old prophet in Bethel. He's clearly not opposed to Jeroboam's made-up religion because his sons were there at the altar, part of it all, and presumably with his approval. Uh, that's how they heard what the man of God said against Jeroboam's altar. That's how they saw which way the man of God went. So immediately the old prophet, he, he gets on his donkey and tries to catch up to the man of God. We're actually not told his motivation. But if he's on side with Jeroboam's made-up religion, like it seems he is, probably it's the same motivation as Jeroboam. To talk it out over a meal hopefully helps this extremist become more reasonable. So the old prophet finds the man of God resting under a tree and invites him back home. But the man of God responds just like he did to Jeroboam, I can't because I'm commanded by the word of the Lord, which is where the old prophet it's really tricky. He says, I'm also a prophet. And I've been given a different word of the Lord. You are into the word of the Lord, right? Then you should really listen to this word of the Lord. Now the old prophet is lying. But how's the man of God meant to know that? I mean, God does sometimes give a new word, doesn't he? Jeremiah 18 says, whenever God pronounces doom on a nation, he'll change it if only that nation repents. Jesus said he came to fulfill the Old Testament law. So it's actually his commands we follow now, not Israel's rules about sacrifices and, and separation from other nations. 
Sometimes God does give a new word, but here's the thing. He only ever does that for a good reason. That's what the man of God should have asked. What's changed? Such that God has now apparently given this other prophet a new word completely opposite to his previous word. Has Jeroboam repented of his made-up religion? We know he hasn't. Has God decided he now really likes false worship and he wants the man of God to get involved? Unlikely. Yet the man of God doesn't question it at all. He gullibly goes along with the old prophet, eating and drinking with him precisely against the word of the Lord. While they're eating, the true word of the Lord comes to the old prophet of all people. See, the man of God has abandoned the word of the Lord, so the old prophet is the only one God can use here to speak to the man of God. Because the man of God rejected the word of the Lord, even though accidentally he'll die before he gets back home. How do you feel about that? Does that sound a bit harsh? Well, the man of God doesn't object. He accepts it. He's acted like the false prophet. So he takes the false prophet's donkey and for the first time, the man of God is actually not called the man of God, but the prophet. And before he gets back home, he's killed by a lion. It turns out sticking to the word of the Lord is a matter of life and death. And Jesus says, it's even more than that. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. See, it's not just a matter of life and death, but eternal life and death. We are going to feel enormous cultural pressure to ignore parts of the Bible or reinterpret awkward parts of the Bible. Actually, even well-meaning Christians are going to say, maybe there's a new word of the Lord that can better fit with our culture, a bit like the old prophet. But don't be led astray like the man of God. It is going to cost you to stick with Jesus' words. Do know that. But also know it will cost you far more to not. Which leaves us the third and final response to the word of the Lord. The old prophet himself. The man of God uh, began aligned with the word of the Lord but ended up astray. The, the old prophet's actually the reverse. We've already seen how he was against the word of the Lord, approving Jeremiah's made-up religion in Bethel, making up his own word of the Lord to deceive the, the man of God. 
But now he's given a true word of the Lord to the man of God. And when he hears what happened to the man of God, he says, yes, this fulfills that word of the Lord. See, this whole experience is actually leading the old prophet back to the word of the Lord. He goes and gets the body from the roadside and buries the man of God in his own grave. And he says to his sons, when I die, bury me next to him. Why? Because, verse 32, see that there. He now believes the word of the Lord, which the man of God cried out against Jeroboam. Bethel's bones certainly will be defiled by a future Davidic king. But maybe this is his hope. Maybe not the bones of the man of God himself and anyone who's buried with the man of God. That's actually what happens. Almost uh, 300 years later, 2 Kings 23, you can read it. King Josiah of Judah reunites some parts of northern Israel with Judah. He does burn the bones of the false priests on the false altar of Bethel. But while he's doing that, he sees a monument, asks, what, what's that? He's told, oh, that's the grave of the man of God who predicted you would do this. And so Josiah says, don't defile the bones of the man of God or the prophet who's buried with him. And that might not mean much if you come from a culture which doesn't care much about burial. But in ancient Israel, they, they didn't yet have a super clear hope of resurrection. That only became super clear, actually, when Jesus himself physically rose from death. They only knew that God was definitely going to do something for his people beyond death. And being buried with your ancestors in the promised land was a way of saying, yes, I want to be part of that, whatever that is. It might have been a vague hope for this old prophet, but by turning back to the word of the Lord, he does get some genuine hope beyond death. And it's a hope he actually shares with the man of God. See, that, that image of them lying next to each other in the grave, it might explain that other extremely strange image the lion and the donkey standing peacefully beside each other by the road. It's actually mentioned uh, both verse 24 and verse 28, so we don't miss it. Now, this will shock you. That's actually not one photo. I've actually taken two separate photos and spliced them together seamlessly to make it look like it's just one photo. Why did I do that? 
to prove that, that my Photoshop skills can match Film Again's. <laughs> but also because in nature, donkeys and lions don't stand peacefully next to each other waiting for you to snap them on your phone. They're natural enemies, obviously, predator and prey. But somehow the death of the man of God seems to bring peace between them. Which is pretty striking if you know much about Jesus. Sure, a big difference to Jesus is that the, the man of God shouldn't have believed the old prophet's lie. But after that, the man of God is strikingly like Jesus. He seems to take the old prophet's place. Uh, the man of God eats and drinks with the old prophet. When he hears his death sentence, he accepts it. He rides the old prophet's own donkey as he himself is called the prophet. He dies the death the old prophet actually seemed to deserve far more. He's even buried in the old prophet's own grave. And it's only through all of this that the old prophet is brought back to the word of the Lord. For him, that north-south hostility is broken down and he's given hope beyond death with the man of God. It is a bit like Jesus, isn't it? When Jesus came into this world, he never sinned, but he eats and drinks with sinners, sinners like you and me. And he, not, he's not being pulled away from the word of the Lord. He's pulling us to the word of the Lord. He knows that's going to provoke the religious authorities to have him killed. That's God's plan. He accepts that. So he can die in our place for our sins on the cross. Dying the death we deserve so we have the sure hope of being raised from death as Jesus himself has already been. Uniting everyone who trusts in him, breaking down the old hostilities. In that way, maybe Jesus himself is the pointer we need in our current cultural moment. You see, there's going to be far more attacks on the word of the Lord than we've seen so far. There'll actually be pressure even from fellow Christians to, to just adjust the word of the Lord to fit our culture better. It might be tempting to just withdraw from our culture, I guess like the man of God was meant to, or, or just give in like the men of God eventually did. But followers of Jesus, actually, we can't do either. Not just for our salvation, but for other people's. We want to see more and more people led back like the old prophet before it's too late, like it was for Jeroboam. And that only happens if, like Jesus, we both engage with people and hold true to the word of the Lord. 
We can't draw people to the word of the Lord if we depart from it ourselves. But if we hold true to Jesus and his words, we can engage with people in hope that they'll be drawn to Jesus and his words rather than us being drawn away. Sometimes we might wish we had the hand-withering, altar-cracking powers of the man of God. But the far greater power is that of Jesus' death in our place and the friendship he showed to sinners like you and me. Maybe if we really do hold true to Jesus and his words, show people the truth and power and love and friendship of Jesus himself, we can see more people led back to him. Let's pray that will happen. I'm going to pray now. Heavenly Father, we do have to confess that, like all humanity, we have not lived by your word. We have rejected your word. We can only thank you that Jesus came and died the death we deserve in our place. Now, Father, may we be faithful to your word, not led astray, but actually leading others to know you through your word, that they may be saved with us. In Jesus' name, amen.